Hey everyone, Steve here. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Natural Curiosity Project. I don't typically take on controversial topics in this podcast because there's already way too much airtime devoted to getting a rise out of people for various murky reasons. In this episode, though, I want to talk about climate change or global warming or whatever name you choose to give it. It's one of the least understood issues on the planet today, and yet huge numbers of people have strong emotional opinions about it. I mean, really strong, in spite of the fact that most of them don't actually have enough information about the phenomenon to make an informed decision about the reality of a warming planet and what it might lead to. In fact, in the spirit of curiosity, as I was thinking about producing this episode, I thought a lot about the topic and realized that I didn't really understand it all that well either. So I did some research and I decided that it was good to discuss on the podcast. I also talked with people who know a lot about the science behind climate change. They're not speculating. They're directly involved in the process of discovery that begins with a hypothesis. The hypothesis is then tested against data that's known to be true. A result emerges. The result is double-checked by third-party researchers using a better experiment than the original one. The result matches, and a new truth emerges. This isn't speculation, and it's not a guess, and it isn't theory. It's science, and it's real. So real, in fact, that organizations like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, have expressed interest in their work. I'll introduce you to one of these people a little bit later in the podcast. So here's what I want to do in this episode. I'm going to begin by explaining what global warming or climate change actually is. I'm then going to explain what causes it based on everything we know to be true. Along the way, I'll pull in our expert and give him a chance to comment because he has a lot of good information to share. His name is Dan Young. I went to school in Berkeley, California at the University of California. And uh, my degree was in chemical engineering and I got a, got a master's in environmental science. Smart guy. And hey, he went to Berkeley and hung out in a lot of the same buildings I did when I was there. So you'll hear more from Dan throughout the show. So what is climate change? And by the way, I'm going to use that particular phrase because global warming has become sort of politically weaponized and it's kind of lost its meaning. For a lot of people, that phrase translates to human-caused climate change, even though that's not what it means, at least not exclusively. But rather than raise hackles, I'm going to stick to climate change. So what is it? Well, climate change refers to a shift in the statistical distribution of weather and environmental phenomena over an extended period of time. The change might be measured over a decade or two, or it might be studied over thousands or even millions of years. Now, I'll explain how they do that in a minute. What it translates to is that the length of seasons might change or the weather events that occur during each season may become more or less violent. For example, most of the climatologists that study changing weather patterns agree that Hurricane Katrina, clearly a more violent than normal storm, was the direct result of changing weather patterns and that it's the harbinger of what's going to become a growing pattern of intense weather. Now, lots of things cause climate change. We are certainly a factor, we being industrial human society, but we're one of several. Others include biological shifts, changes in the intensity of solar radiation that strikes the atmosphere, and even volcanic eruptions. So let's take a moment to explain these. I started this, this uh, project because I felt that the biomass of the world was being depleted and this was, was having a major effect on climate change. 
and that effect wasn't being recognized at all by the scientific community who, who had attributed it all to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now that's Dan. He wrote a pretty hefty book called Restoring Climate Change by Managing Ecological Disorder. That's quite a mouthful, but his message is easy to understand. Biomass is material that originated uh, biologically. Okay, biological material. Let's explore that first. Biological shifts happen when a change occurs in the biomass on the planet. For example, if for whatever reason a mass die-off of a large forest occurs, or the desert encroaches on a grassland or scrubland resulting in a loss of the amount of photosynthesis that goes on, then climate's affected. If solar radiation increases, the ability of the atmosphere to radiate heat becomes impaired. This does happen. In fact, between three and four billion years ago, during what's known as the Precambrian period, the sun was actually weaker than it is today by about 25%. If it had been as strong then as it is now, two things would have happened. One, there'd be no water on Earth, which means that there'd be no us on Earth. And two, there'd be no atmosphere. So we're actually lucky to be the beneficiaries of a slightly weaker sun during the early days of the planet. Anyway, as the sun became more powerful over the next four billion years or so, and more radiation struck the new atmosphere, its composition changed. And with it, the first life on Earth emerged, including an explosion of photosynthetic cyanobacteria about two and a half billion years ago. This led to what climate scientists call the Great Oxygenation Event. One result was that all that oxygen produced by those photosynthetic bacteria broke down the methane in the atmosphere, converting it into carbon dioxide and water. Now, methane is one of the major greenhouse gases, meaning a gas that absorbs heat and prevents it from radiating into space, which results in a warmer planet. The result of lower levels of methane was a cooler planet beginning around two and a half billion years ago and lasting for about 350 million years, eventually turning the planet into a giant ice ball for a period of time. Now, the second effect, and it was crucial, was huge diversification of life on the planet. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, what about volcanoes? Well, when they erupt in a serious way, they spew tons of ash and sulfurous gases like sulfur dioxide, a major greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere, both of which lead to major changes in the global climate. When Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991, the global temperature went up by just about one degree for three years. Now, I know that one degree doesn't sound like much, but we're talking about a single event that had global consequences. When Krakatoa exploded in 1816, it blew 25 cubic miles of rock and ash into the atmosphere, causing what came to be known as the year without a summer. Global temperatures dropped by an average of about 3 degrees, which again doesn't sound like very much, but months of cloud cover and very high rainfall as a result of that explosion led to crop failures and disease outbreaks and widespread famine. So the results were pretty serious. Now one of the questions that always comes up is how we know so much about the state of the early planet billions of years ago, given that we weren't around at the time to study it. Well, the answer is kind of interesting. Let's start with the most recent information we have and work backwards. We have really accurate global weather data dating back to the mid-1700s or so because of scientific research that was done at the time, military records, shipping logs, and other reliable resources. Earlier data is a bit trickier, but as it turns out, it's just as accurate. And here's how we know what we know. It's a collection of things, a sort of a smorgasbord of data from lots of sources. 
First, we have extremely accurate weather information, including temperature readings from borehole samples collected from deep in the earth. We have extremely old ice cores, some of them over a million years old. And it's not just ice. That ice contains atmospheric information, carbon dioxide levels, ash and other dust that fell at the time, and bacterial and botanical and zoological material. We also have data from the analysis of stable chemical isotopes that are trapped in sedimentary rock and quite a few other data sources that help to fill out a pretty complete picture of things at the time. Now let me just pause for a moment to share a thought. Just based on what I've told you so far, just what we've talked about so far, you should have a pretty good idea that in order to truly understand the detailed inner workings of climate change, a person would have to understand an awful lot of science. They'd have to understand meteorology, the science of weather, to make sense of changes in climate patterns that involve the atmosphere. They'd need a solid basis in biology to understand the evolution of life on the planet from single-celled cyanobacteria to more complex organisms, not to mention the evolution of things like cellular structures and photosynthesis. They'd need to know something about chemistry to understand how plants turn sunlight and water and carbon dioxide into complex sugars and carbohydrates. And then, like a gigantic solar cell, store vast amounts of energy and, at the same time, capture enormous amounts of carbon in the process, not to mention to understand how certain compounds in the atmosphere prevent heat from escaping into space. They'd have to know something about oceanography because of the need to understand upwellings during which deep water and nutrients are pushed upward from the seafloor, and oceanic current systems that help to maintain the temperature differential on the planet's surface between the cold poles and the warm equator. Physics, to grasp thermodynamic principles, such as the second law of thermodynamics, which speaks of entropy, something we'll hear more about in a few minutes. Geology, because to understand how the planet warms and cools, you have to understand how it works, including such things as the mechanics of volcanism, plate tectonics, and rock chemistry. And finally, astronomy, just because of the relationship between the Earth and the Sun and Earth's atmosphere. My point is this. Anybody who claims to understand climate change well enough to deny that it exists or that we have much influence over it doesn't understand it at all. So with that in mind, let's look at what we know. The Earth's climate has five elements. The atmosphere, which extends from sea level up to about 60 miles, the very edge of outer space. The hydrosphere, which includes all the water on, under, and above the Earth's surface. The cryosphere, which is all the areas where water exists in a permanent solid state, which means the North and South Poles. The lithosphere, which is the planet itself. And finally, the biosphere, which is the collection of all the ecosystems on the planet. Now, I want to talk about physics for just a moment. Now, please don't run for the hills. What I'm about to explain isn't that complicated. We're going to talk about the second law of thermodynamics. And because it's not just a suggestion, it's the law, you need to know a bit about it. The second law of thermodynamics is all about entropy, which is the tendency of a system to become increasingly random and disordered over time. That's just the way of things. Here's an example. Information theory. The information required to document a forest, which is highly ordered and therefore enjoys less entropy, is a lot less complex than the data required to describe the smoke, flames, hot gases, and ash of a forest fire, which is far less ordered and therefore has more entropy associated with it, okay? So entropy is the tendency to move toward disorder. My work has been based on the second law of thermodynamics, 
which is a scientific way of evaluating how the Earth becomes an ordered system as opposed to a disordered system. And when we destroy the forest biomass, and all the biomass, um, we destroy the order of the Earth. And, and, and when the Earth becomes a disordered system, we have equilibrated all the temperature zones to the point where the, where the Earth has no more character. So why does this matter? Well, according to Dan, there's a relationship that can't be ignored. There is, in fact, a major relationship between the warming of the climate and, and the destruction of the biomass. And that, uh, th that indeed isn't recognized by, by, the, by the science of our time. And that something needs, needs to be done to recognize that our climate is, is responding to the destruction of the, the biomass in the forests and in the soils and in the various biomes of the earth. Let's go back to entropy again. Here's where it becomes important to our understanding of why the planet is warming. Entropy is a measure of, of disorder. Order is essentially a low entropy value. Disorder is a high entropy value. And entropy can be moved around. The Earth normally discharges entropy, and so it retains order. If we block the discharge route by, say, adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, the, the Earth can no longer get rid of its disorder or entropy, and so the, the, the disorder builds on the surface of the Earth. And when the, when the disorder builds on the surface of the Earth, everything that's ordered can no longer become ordered because all the processes are operating in the reverse of what's required to make things become ordered. So before we continue, let me summarize a little bit. The second law of thermodynamics says that systems like the Earth's biosphere will naturally become less ordered, more random over time. The sun warms the Earth, more so at the equator than at the poles, creating a temperature differential. And because of that differential, energy flows in distinct patterns that show up as weather systems and ocean currents, the movement and composition of the atmosphere, and so on. The Earth takes up solar energy most intensely at the equator where the, where, the, where the sunlight impinges most directly upon the Earth. As you go toward the pole, the Earth absorbs less and less energy from the sun. And the, the energy that impinges on the equator warms the equator more than any other part of the Earth. And so, the, so there's an energy flow that flows toward the poles. And, and as this energy flows toward the poles, it, it kind of activates all the other activity that occurs on the, on the Earth. The Earth. The Earth would just collapse and die without this, this, this distribution of energy across the surface of the Earth. If, if the energy that impinges on the Earth weren't distributed in this way, there would be no, no thermal activity, let me say, to stimulate all the biological activity that, that occurs. The biosphere has a high degree of order, low entropy, because it routinely discharges excess energy into space in the form of heat, which maintains the balance of a warm equator and cold polar regions. This balance, this order, 
is also really crucial to the maintenance of biodiversity on the planet. I mean, just think about it. The poles, because they're so cold, have very different biodiversity than the lush, green, rich-with-life equatorial rainforests of Central America and Brazil and tropical Africa, where every square inch is covered with life. The forests themselves have been described as the Earth's lungs because they take in massive amounts of carbon dioxide. Remember that. They consume carbon dioxide. And in the magic known as photosynthesis, they convert sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water into complex sugars and carbohydrates, and they give off oxygen as a byproduct. When you look at climate change as a, as a redistribution of energy on the on the earth's surface which is really what i what i'm talking about here you understand that mankind can can do that much more easily than 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 he can change the amount of energy that's coming or going and and we're essentially operating a control valve that's going to even out the distribution of energy on the earth and while we may not be able to change the amount of energy that comes in or comes out, to change its distribution is much more easily done. And, and we may have already crossed that line. So where do we as humans come into this equation? To answer that question, we first have to understand what a greenhouse gas actually is. Now, greenhouse gases aren't good or bad. They just are. They include things like carbon dioxide and methane and ozone and water. The only reason we see them as evil is because they share a chemical property which, if it gets out of hand, causes problems for Earth's biosphere and therefore for us. That property is that they have the annoying tendency to absorb energy in the infrared range that we call heat. They all do that, which means that if we have too much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere absorbing heat, then the Earth can't discharge that excess energy into space and the entropy level, the disorder, goes up. And that's not a good thing. Now, I said earlier that we humans aren't the only producers of greenhouse gases on the planet, and that's absolutely true. Termites produce more than 20 million tons of methane every year. Termites, that's about 3% of the total. And it would actually be twice that, except that they share their nests with a type of bacteria that oxidizes methane although the result is carbon dioxide and water, both of which are greenhouse gases as well. Methane is actually 23 times worse for the environment as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, so it's a bit disturbing that cattle, by belching and, well, you know, produce about 2 billion metric tons of greenhouse gas per year. Now, our contribution as humans comes in several ways. First, it's no surprise we burn a lot of hydrocarbon-based fuels. Now, let me be clear. My dad is a retired petroleum geologist. I grew up in an oil family, so this isn't an attack on the fossil fuel industry. But when we burn fossil fuels, coal, gas, oil, we create carbon dioxide and other compounds that absorb heat in the atmosphere. It has no other place to go. Transportation contributes about 30% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, while power production creates another 30%, both of which we need to keep the wheels of society moving. Here's one you probably didn't know about. The second most consumed substance on Earth after water is cement, the main ingredient of concrete. And the production of it, which requires massive consumption of power, generates 5% of the world's greenhouse gases. Who knew? 
Now, luckily, the equatorial lungs of the planet are hard at work, sucking up all that carbon dioxide and water from the atmosphere so that Earth doesn't start to feel like cloud-covered, humid, sticky-hot Venus and producing massive amounts of oxygen at the same time. But now we, we humans, make things worse. We demand exotic woods like rosewood and mahogany and teak. Fast food chains demand huge volumes of cheap beef to meet the needs of their hungry customers. And forest-dwelling societies, pulled into the dubiously named modern world, find increasingly that they have to farm to live. Now, all of these activities translate to the destruction of the forest, the lungs of the planet that suck up greenhouse gases and produce life-giving oxygen. We cut the hardwoods for their value as exotic inlays. We clear the land for cattle. And local people cut the trees to create farmland. So not only are we producing more greenhouse gases that trap the excess heat that would otherwise escape into space, we're destroying the one thing we have that can manage the problem. You see, we're growing the problem and destroying the solution. And it can't continue. What we do about global warming depends upon getting the science right. If we're just considering global warming to be a factor of CO2 in the atmosphere, we're missing the, uh, the fact that the order in the earth is being sacrificed. So I asked Dan what we can do. We need to do any, anything we can to encourage the resuscitation of the order of the, of the earth. Restore the, the growth of forests. We need to restore the growth of grasslands. We need to reduce the interference of entropy escaping from the earth. And one way to do that is just exactly what's, what science predicts, which is stop interfering with the, the escape of energy through the atmosphere. Remember our earlier conversation about biomass? Dan defined it as anything that is or was alive at some point. That includes forests, grasslands, and of course, coal, natural gas, and crude oil. All of these have something very important in common. They store energy and they capture carbon. They're what we call carbon sinks. When carbon's buried in the earth as coal or trapped under a salt dome as crude oil or natural gas, or captured as wood and grass and leaves and stems and twigs, not to mention as sugars and carbohydrates, it's in a highly ordered state. The entropy is low. When we convert those compounds to high entropy states by burning them, we also release compounds that rise into the atmosphere and trap heat, the so-called greenhouse gases, preventing the Earth from maintaining its highly ordered, exquisitely systemic state. And if we then reduce the ability of the world's forests to reduce atmospheric carbon dioxide through cutting and burning to satisfy the short-term needs of industry, then we're creating trouble. Remember the scene in Ghostbusters where they meet the mayor of New York and he asks them what will happen if they don't do anything? And they say... Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Well, we're not there yet, but climate change or global warming or whatever you want to call it is real, and it's serious. And as Dan said, we may have already crossed a line that we can't back away from. But are there things we can do? The secret is in utilizing solar energy and maybe geothermal energy and wind power, but the answer is not in utilizing biomass to produce energy. Biomass is, is, is what we've been destroying 
from the uh, 1850s onward. Climate change is one of those topics that creates a lot of emotion, but frankly, it shouldn't. To understand what it means, to comprehend what the science is telling us, is to recognize that it is a problem, that we are part of that problem, and that we, and only we, have the ability to take steps that will do something about it. Does the planet naturally warm and cool? Absolutely. Do we accelerate that? Absolutely. Are the results potentially dire if we don't change what we're doing to make it worse? Absolutely. The evidence, the science, is clear. Why this is even a question in the face of overwhelming evidence boggles my mind. The fact that the United States turned its back on the Paris Climate Accord is beyond stupid, in my opinion. There are believers, maybe true believer is, is the right word, that believe in something regardless of the facts and, and simply want it to be true. And people who believe in climate change so much that it has to be taken for granted. When water appears on Fifth Avenue, they will not consider that maybe something should be done about climate change. Their argument will be, we should raise Fifth Avenue. We should raise all the buildings in New York City, and we should just keep going up as long as the ocean keeps going up. But climate change, that's the way it is. Now, that's almost the opposite of a climate denier. That's someone who feels that climate change is real and there's nothing you can do about it. So you better start adjusting to it. And uh, I, I don't really think either side is, is quite accurate. I'm Steve Shepard. Thanks for dropping by. I hope you enjoyed this program and I hope it made you curious. Do your own research. Go find some articles about this topic from all the different perspectives that surround it. and Decide for yourself what you think about climate change. But please, don't just dismiss it. It's far too important, and your opinion is far too important to be left to chance.